this is uh, Biblical Theology of the Old Testament 2, which uh, has a better name, which is, uh, what is it, the prophets and their message. What we're going to be doing is that we're going to be looking at the Old Testament prophetic literature and don't worry, you're not going to be reading through you know, verse by verse all of the prophets because we don't have time to do that. But what we are going to do is that we're going to see how the Old Testament prophets take the materials that we looked at in the first course, the covenant materials, for example, the Abrahamic covenant and the priestly covenant and so on, and how they use them, how they work with them, how they take the portrait and the promises of Christ, which we looked at, and develop them. The prophets are all about developing what went before. And in their development of that material, uh, they give us more revelation, more information. And uh, I suppose one of the things that I'm going to be repeating over and again in this, uh, in this course is that they are concerned to paint a picture. And that picture becomes very vivid by the time that they stop their ministry with Malachi circa 450, 475. Um, by that time, what we'll see is that the prophets lead people to expect certain clear things. So these things are both taken from what went before, in the Pentateuch particularly, developed by the different prophets, uh, writing from around about the middle of the 8th century BC through to about the 5th century BC. And um, by the time we get into the period approaching the New Testament, there is a definite expectation that people who are reading that literature have, and that's the expectation that I want you to have as well. I mean, as much as possible. What I want you to do is to try to imagine as much as you can that these books are, uh, are being read by you for the first time. I know that's kind of impossible, but try and fool yourself, because uh, if you do that, then, uh, then what I'm trying to get across, I think, will come across more powerfully. And you'll also be ready for the next course, which I know that you'll all sign up for, which deals with the New Testament and how the New Testament authors deal with all of this material and all of these expectations that we'll be developing. Uh, what I need to do is just say a few boring general remarks and then we'll get into a review of the first course. I know some of you weren't there for the first course, so I'm going to review some of the major teachings that we did then. Uh, then I want to de develop something of what I call the, the downward spiral. Things went really to pot, didn't they? Um, time of the end of Joshua and then Judges. Samuel, I mean, you really get fed up with Israel. And uh, they go about as far away from God as, as anyone can go. And yet God is faithful to them. And even in the midst of that, raises up his king, David, in the 11th century. 
things go to pot again, of course, and then you get the prophets coming. You get Elijah and Elisha, people like that, prophesying in around about the ninth century. And then the writing prophets come up, which is what we are particularly concerned with in this course. And uh, once I've painted that picture a little bit, I want to ask this question. What is a prophet? What is a prophet? And that's when we'll open our Bibles. So today we're not going to be opening our Bibles very much because there's a lot of review uh, going to be done. But we are going to be opening our Bibles a lot. You will need a notebook if you want to get the most out of this course. Um, Some of you are very smart people and you can just take it all in and absorb it, I understand. Uh, But then some of you... um, If you're like me, you just need to write it down. And so I do recommend that you do that to get your money's worth and, you know, just just retain the the material. Um, I will not make the mistake of asking you what you're doing on your phone this time. I really have a... uh, something against technology. I'm anti-technology... Um, you can use your phones and use your, your stuff but just don't do it in front of me too much Okay, it just puts me off I, um, I really think I have a Christian view on this I think that, that um, it's not just me being weird it, it actually has to do with the fact that technology takes from people it takes away it doesn't just um, provide some kind of thing that you can use it actually takes it always asks more than than it gives there was a a French polymath by the name of Jacques Ellul who uh, wrote about this in the 1940s and the 1950s and uh, he wrote a book called The Technological Society and that's before all of this you know cell phones and all these other things but it was at the uh, the onset of the modern Um, scientific and technological revolution and what his concern was in his books was uh, with what he called technique and by technique what he meant was that um, the computers that that were coming out and all of the different uh, ideas for you know space age and and so on and uh, the advent of a, a wonderful future world that people back then thought would, they would create uh, that could not be achieved by means of technology. And the reason is that technology doesn't have a soul. It always demands and intrudes. Uh, what I mean by that is that, or what he meant by that, is that once you use technology, then you you have an advance in that technology, and that advance in technology, it might cut corners for you, but it also carves out a little niche for itself, which you once occupied. And so it it kind of, um, I don't know, takes the soul, sucks the soul out of you. All right? I've just been in Amish country, by the way, and they believe that if you take photos of them, that you take their soul away. I don't believe that, but I do believe that uh, some of you who are overly dependent on technology, I do believe your soul is withering inside. 
So, <clears throat> but that's up to you. All right. I'm not going to say anything else about that. <clears throat> uh, let's see, anything else? Any questions anyone has about uh, just the way that this course is going to go? Then I'll say some more. Questions? Uh, if you want to ask a question, put your hand up and I will either tell you that it's a good time or not a good time uh, to ask the question. The reason that I do that is not because I'm a meanie, it's because um, when I get going on a train of thought, I don't like to interrupt it, because sometimes I forget what I'm saying otherwise. And the other reason is because I will probably answer your question if you give me time. Um, just because I've been teaching this stuff for so long that I kind of know what kinds of questions come up. So just give me time. I also want to stop you from asking a question that, that uh, you will leap to that will take us way off track. Uh, what we need to do is that we need to be patient in this very impatient world and we need to kind of incrementally learn things. Sometimes, uh, for some of you, that might feel as though you're, you're dying a little bit because you've got this stuff that you, you need to get answered. I will ask you just to be patient, to learn the stuff that you are taught, think about that, and then as we move forward, I think that you, um, you'll be actually better prepared to, to sit down with an open Bible and be patient with what it's telling you rather than reading what you want into it. This is where I feel like talking about fluffy devotionals, but I'm not going to. I'm going to move on, resist the urge, <clears throat> and um, we'll start with a review of the first course. Hello. Hi. Glad you came. All right. So last time what we did, can you all see behind these rude pillars? All right. Can you see? All right. Okay. I mean, I can move this too, maybe. If I move it forward, would it help? Yes. Yeah. All right. Let's see. How's that? Okie dokie. So some things that uh, are important that we looked at last time, which I will be referring to and which I think um, will help you. The first thing is that we would do well to look at God's creation of the world as a project. Uh, the reason it's a good idea to do that is because uh, unlike the false gods, the pagan gods, the God who is real knows what he's doing. He doesn't trip over his own feet. He doesn't, uh, you know... 
plan things that he has no idea what he's going to do, how it's going to turn out. He's not caught out by his creatures, even if his creatures turn out to be as rotten as we are and, and are disobedient like we are. He knows the end from the beginning. In um, uh, Acts chapter 17, James in that, no, 15, sorry, Acts 15, uh, James in that Jerusalem assembly, he says, Known from the beginning of the world uh, are God's ways. Okay? Something like that. In other words, God know, knew what he was going to do before he even created the world. Now that's really important to keep in mind. Remember also about Christ. He's what? The lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. So before the world was made, it was already in the mind of God that A, we'd fall, that B, he would love us enough to come into the world to save us. And uh, therefore that he knew what that salvation would entail at the end. We haven't reached the end yet. The end is going to be glorious. The end is going to be uh, truly amazing because it's wrought by the suffering and by the, the blood of God's own Son. Um, this Sunday, I'm, I'll be preaching on the, uh, the agony in the garden in Gethsemane. And in that passage, remember that, that Jesus, uh, he is said to be extremely troubled, greatly agitated. And uh, he even tells that, he divulges that to three of his disciples, doesn't he? He says that my soul is, is uh, tumulted, he says, even unto death. And then he wants three of the disciples to pray for him of course they don't but he goes and what does he pray the son of God knows the plan of God all of that stuff what does he pray if it's possible let this cup let this time pass from me why does he do that he knows what the will of God is why does he do that because of the, the uh, tension, the pain, uh, the overwhelming uh, immensity of what he's about to do. That overwhelms the, just the cold calculated, yeah, I'm going to do this, this is the plan, I know how it's going to end up, and let's just do this thing. Uh, rather, he enters into suffering in this world. And uh, for that kind of suffering to have been necessary, and it was necessary. The agony in the garden was necessary. It was necessary for Christ to, to shed those great drops of blood, to be that anxious um, as a human being. Because that was necessary, don't you think that what comes out of that, finally, is going to be... Well, beyond what we can even ask or think. The, the, the difference between this world and the world to come is, is truly one that cannot be uh, entered into by us. 
we can enter something uh, somewhat into Christ's suffering and we can identify something somewhat with that, can't we? Yes? Yeah, I mean, some of us have really been kicked around. So, I mean, yeah, to a greater or lesser extent. We understand pain. We understand sorrow. But uh, at the same time, what we can't understand is how the, the whole shooting match is going to end up because it's going to end up not just kind of our standard of perfection but God's standard of perfection uh, not our stan- standard of beauty and our standard of, of proportionality and all the rest of that that's the art thing coming out um, but, but God's and if you want to enter into the proportionality of God, you enter into uh, the way that the, the grass and the trees and the sky and the sun, they're all so different and they're all different colors and yet they go together so wonderfully, don't they, even in this world. And that will be intensified um, when Christ returns. And um, the power to do that is is in his suffering and in his death and his resurrection which we'll enter into so where was I? oh Um, oh, the creation project so yes I was saying I was going to preach I was going to preach on it this Sunday not now okay Okay, so um, so we need to see that this is a project that God has set in motion and when we see the world as a project and this is where we get some of my art okay, so that's the world as it was originally created that's exactly what it looked like and um, it's going to end up okay, in a more glorious world so we'll do some of this here so you'll know that that means it's going to be a glorious world Um, in between here is a plan that God is working out right now the only question that we need to uh, ask is how does the Bible and what the Bible tells us uh, how does that help us to understand the beginning from the end and how much detail can we fill in between these, uh, these two points Uh, I think if we actually believe what God says, we can fill in quite a lot. We certainly can't fill in everything, but we can fill in quite a lot. And uh, there are different ways that we can do this. One of the first ways is we can actually believe what God says, which is, you know, what some people seem to have a real problem with. It's one thing, by the way, it's one thing to... Uh, to not believe what God says or have trouble believing what God says when you're in trouble and when the sky's falling in and everything looks grey it's sometimes difficult to grasp hold of that but faith helps us to grasp hold of that even when we don't feel like grasping hold of it but it's quite another thing altogether when God tells us very clearly in his word um, what he's going to do how he's going to do things then we have a choice about whether we're going to listen or not and that choice very often is dictated by our presuppositions 
especially our assumptions about what we think the New Testament demands uh, our allegiance to. Do we believe, for example, that uh, the church is it? It's all about the church now. After all, we're part of the church. We have a vested interest in God, you know, doing great things with the church. And um, we might feel as though uh, in, in being cheerleaders for the church, uh, we are, um, th- th- that's all that God cares about, just us and what we're doing. But the Old Testament, you see, builds a picture for us which seems to contradict that, at least on the surface, because it talks about this bunch of people called Israel, in a nation, in a land. And there's a lot of particularity, a lot of specification that's given about Israel. Many people in evangelicalism today believe that God is, in one way or another, uh, saying it nicely or very bluntly through with Israel. The nice way of saying it is that uh, God will save those Israelites, those Jews that will believe in Christ just before Christ returns. That's a nice way of saying it. That's a polite way of saying it. Uh, To get behind what they mean by that, just mention the nation of Israel and the national promises and you'll see that what they really mean is that the church has replaced Israel. Do you see? If you say that, then you have to go back into the Old Testament and you have to do what? Well, you have to turn it actually into a Christian book. Do you see? You have to make it something that's, that's, that preaches well for you. And so you will tend to just take the stories of Scripture and uh, make nice little moral stories out of them and apply them to you or you know, to other people's situations. Uh, maybe you'll go to Proverbs and, and believe some of that stuff. Um, but what you'll tend to do is uh, particularly when you meet the prophetic scriptures you'll start to uh, fiddle with them somewhat so that um, the church actually becomes the, the point of it all rather than who it says it's directed to which is the nation of Israel and David's throne and so on and so forth are you familiar with this kind of thinking? Yes? All right. At the end of of the last course, I came and uh, brought in a few big tomes and read from them. Those of you that were here, I think about three of you were here. Um, But those of you that were here um, will recall, uh, hopefully, uh, some of the impression that, that maybe was made on you by these scholarly works they were very blunt about the fact that the church is it that God is through with Israel and that the way to interpret the Old Testament is to um, I'd use the word spiritualize they would use uh, nicer words like transform or expand because we're in that kind of age now when you don't say what you're supposed what you really mean you say it nicely in another way so that people will think that you don't mean what you really mean but um, but 
this is the prevailing view that's being taught to students nowadays. It's the prevailing view in many pulpits, not in this one, by the way, in this church, um, that the church is the new Israel. And the old Israel, which is the one that's hanging out in the Middle East causing all of that trouble, uh, they need to get with a plan and believe on Christ and, and they'll be incorporated into the church, which is the real the true Israel. I'm, I'm pointing to this right now because um, I want you to, at least to get the heads up to the fact that A, I think that's a load of rubbish, and B, that you cannot do what we're trying to do in these classes and take that position. You cannot uh, have a head full of what you think the New Testament says and freight it back into the Old Testament and say, yeah, but what about this? And what about this New Testament passage? And what about Paul here? And what about so-and-so? And if any of you do that, by the way, I'll just tell you to wait until the next course, and I will tell you to pay attention to what God is saying in the context. Because guess what? Just because you've got the New Testament doesn't mean that the prophets had it and doesn't mean that the people that the prophets wrote to had it in fact it doesn't mean that the earliest Christians had it I hope that you realize that uh, even though the last book of the New Testament uh, the book of Revelation was written about 1895-96 that it was rare for Christians to have a, a complete New Testament the Gospels would circulate the four Gospels would circulate together in the first um, first and second centuries let's say that I take uh, the, the uh, traditional date so let's say Matthew wrote circa 45 to 47 um, Mark say 51 Luke around about 58 to 62 then John uh, 85 to 90 those gospels would circulate together as a group Sometimes the book of Acts appended to Luke. Um, and, and churches would have those Gospels. And then you would have uh, the 12 epistles of Paul and usually Hebrews lumped in as well. And no, I don't believe Paul wrote Hebrews. If that makes me a heretic, I'm sorry, but I don't. But you would have those lumped together, but they would circulate separately. And then you'd have the general epistles, and they would circulate uh, separately, but they wouldn't cir circulate at the same frequency. You wouldn't have as many manuscripts of the gospel, of, uh, sorry, of uh, the general epistles as you would of Paul. You wouldn't have as many manuscripts of Paul as you would have of the gospels. And so many of the early Christians wouldn't have encountered an entire New Testament, not even... Augustine actually in the 5th century had an entire New Testament now if you if you have a belief that you have to have a New Testament to interpret the Old Testament I hope you can see that the earliest Christians were in a bit of bother weren't they because they didn't have one so I think it's wise to, to kind of if, if any of you have those kinds of assumptions and maybe you don't I'm looking around to see if I can spot one of you yeah. <laughs> Yeah, are you twitching or anything like that? <laughs> um, but if any of you have, uh, you know, you, you feel 
like uh, shooting a hand up and asking about what about because you think a New Testament passage contradicts what I'm saying um, just hold off okay because what we will see is that God actually knows what he's doing and he doesn't need your help or my help to say what he means to say the only thing that God requires from us is what? faith, yes he wants us to believe him Uh, believing God sometimes means that we don't understand what he's doing so I put a lot of emphasis the last time on Genesis 22 and God taking Isaac up Mount Moriah um, not God Abraham taking Isaac up Mount Moriah by the way if I do that just correct me Um, and, uh, and he was going to sacrifice his son please don't think that he did it coolly and calmly and without any emotion Please don't think that that he wasn't extremely troubled, extremely sad at the uh, position that God had put him in. He could not fully figure out why God said it. And yet he did it, didn't he? Um, He was about to kill his son because he believed that Uh, you believe what God said that's faith guys that really is faith okay if what I'd have done what many people nowadays who spiritualize the Bible would do is I'd just uh, baptize a sheep call it Isaac and kill that take that up Mount Moriah and kill that that would be spiritualization wouldn't it which is what a lot of people do but Uh, Abraham did not spiritualize the Bible Abraham took God at face value and so he he took his son up to Mount Moriah and was prepared to sacrifice him with all of the confusion and all of the the, uh, emotional trauma that that would have brought upon him because he believed that even though he didn't figure it all out he didn't know exactly why he trusted that God did and that's what we are going to do when we are tempted to ask questions about well what, how's the church fit into the, the kind of picture that we will be coming up with when we're studying the prophets we're just going to say well it doesn't matter right now we're just going to see what the Bible says we're going to paint the picture irrespective of what we think we know is down the road and um, try to get the same kind of picture, the same kind of expectation that uh, Peter, James, John, Matthew and the rest of them would have had. Because when we're there, I think that you'll find that we, um, we can step into their time, step into their mindset much easier than if we foolishly try and read the Bible backwards uh, because we think we know <clears throat> how it's all going to end up uh, anything on that makes sense, makes sense. 
Good. That's what I like to hear. I like to hear people. Yes. All right. Um, so a couple more things here, and I'm sorry if some of this is rather rudimentary uh, or a little bit boring, uh, but it, it's kind of important that we, we put this foundation down. So in Genesis chapter 1, but we see it all over the place, Genesis chapter 1 you have this, uh, this to and fro between God saying, let us make, and then so God did it. Yeah? Let there be light, and there was what? Light. Yeah, not a Tonka truck or something different than light. There was light. Um, you even have uh, repetitions, you know, so that you have, for example, you know, let us make, and I, I should really open my Bible and read this, but um, it says, let us make, uh, 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 oh, trees and, and what it has the, the seed in itself and, and grass and herb yielding seed and all of that stuff and let them reproduce. I mean, that's not, that's the Henry translation. But, uh, and then what it says is exactly the same thing in the next verse. It's, it's almost, you know, it's like, okay, I get it. You know, why do you have to repeat it? Just say I did, he did it. But he says exactly the same thing in the next verse so that you will know that there is a correspondence between what God says and what God does. And remember that was an important uh, motif that I wanted to bring out. Now I'll, I'll be emphasizing this more. God's words and God's actions. Um, if you keep in mind that God does what he says he's going to do, that there is a correspondence between God's words and then God's actions that follow that, um, then that will really help you to interpret the Bible. It's a simple thing, isn't it? And where, where does that come from? It comes from the Bible itself. Genesis chapter 1 actually gives you uh, what's called a hermeneutical um, base for the interpretation of the rest of the Bible. Uh, just think about, um, well, a few different incidents. So the Tower of Babel, for example, um, Genesis chapter 10. So the Tower of Babel, uh, God says, let us go down and they are confused their language. And then what does he do? He does what he says he's going to do, doesn't he? Yeah. Um, when... Um, let's see another one. When uh, Naaman is told in Second Kings chapter five that um, he is to dip seven times in Jordan, he gets a lie race about it. Uh, then his servants come to him and they say, "Well, look, what if he's asked you to do some great thing about it? Why don't you just do what he says?" And when he uh, submits to that and humbles himself, what happens? Exactly what. Elisha told him would happen. Why? Because God means what he says, that's why. Because there's a correspondence between God's words and then God's actions, or between what God says and the result that he's promised. When you trust in Jesus Christ as your personal saviour, is it a big surprise what's going to happen? 
I mean, it might be existentially, something happened to you, but as far as, do you expect to be saved? Yes, you do, because why? Because that's what God says you're going to be if you trust in Jesus, do you see? It's very important that that very simple lesson um, is not forgotten. Um, There's a lot of pressure to forget that when we're reading the Bible, especially the Old Testament. Um, And we're going to come across it, but um, I'll I'll try to kind of avoid it and and, uh, go around it in this course, because we'll meet it full force in the next course. You see, I'm already setting you up. This is, this is kind of the carrot and stick thing. Okay. All right. Uh, there was something else. God's language is very clear. He means what he says. And there's a correspondence between these things. I could bring out many of these things. In fact, if you, if you go quickly to, to John 21. John 21, I think it's... Uh, it's either 19 and 20, through 21 or 21 through 23. It's when um, Peter's asking about what will this guy do? Yeah? 21, can you read, read um, just that passage of 21 through, it might be 21 and 22. I'll tell you, read 21 through 23 and I'll tell you to stop if you're going too far. Okay? Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, The Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, If I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. And this saying went out among the brethren that this disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? That's it. All right. So look at that passage. What's going on? Um, somebody's meddling in somebody else's relationship. Well, that's going on. <laughs> but, but can you see there's a problem of interpretation that's at the center of that? Um, Jesus said, in answer to Peter's question, uh, if I will that he remains until I come what is that to you you follow me then what does the next verse say how did they interpret that where did they get that from where did they get that from from what he said yeah they, they kind of yeah if I were to say this yes but what, what was being employed there for them to come up with that stuff? What kicked in? Some of you, to show that you were awake in the last course, I'm expecting some of you to chip in here. No, no, no. Assumptions. Okay. They were, uh, they were employing their unaided human reason to reason to a false conclusion that is a false interpretation and we do that all the time we read the Bible and then we 
go off, we swan off into some kind of interpretation that we dream up. Didn't say that, but we think we know, you know, yeah, but we know what it really means. And it really means this, and then we go off on our merry way. We do that because we, we intrude our own reason into Scripture. And we do it a lot. That's where you get all the different denominations from, by the way. That's where you get these uh, arguments from those people who disagree with you, who are just wrong because they disagree with you. Uh, that's where you get that from because you say, well, look, what does it say? And it's like they can't see what it says. There's a block there, yes? Why? Because they'd all, they've already uh, imposed a meaning on it, not uh, from what it says, but from what they've, um, they've thought it says. It makes sense to them. So then that forever and a day is going to be what that passage means, do you see? And if you do that, and I do that sometimes, I've tried to stop myself over the years, um, but if you do that, you're in very good company because that's what the disciples did too. But then, look what the next verse says. You, you read it out. But he did not say that. Jesus did not say that. But, and then do you see, he repeats exactly the same words as he said before. Why did John put that in there? I mean, he says at the end of his gospel, he could have put a whole lot more stuff in there, couldn't he? Mm -hmm. So that all the books of the world wouldn't contain all the things that Jesus said and did. Well, why did he put that thing in there, then, that Jesus said? Why? It's a warning. It's a warning about misinterpreting the Bible because you're not paying attention to what God says. Do you see? Um, it's easy to do but uh, don't do it try not to do it I mean just just really train yourself to go slowly pay attention to what it's saying and resist the urge to uh, say I know where this is going um then we looked into the biblical covenants. <clears throat> the first biblical covenant is the Noahic covenant. Does anybody here have a problem telling me what the Noahic covenant was all about? Be bold, tell me. This is not a trick question. Well, it had to do with the rainbow. Rainbow was the, cov was the covenant token, but... What was it about? That's too general. Tell me about what it was about. What happened to the land and what happened to the people? It was about... But what was the Noahic covenant about? That he wouldn't do it again. You see, he wouldn't destroy the world with a global flood the, the way that he'd done it before. Remember? Yeah, but he wouldn't do it with a flood. That's right. Yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Where'd you get that from, John? <coughs> Okay. Um, do any of you have a problem with what the Noahic Covenant says, with understanding it or believing it? Have you, anyone have a problem with believing it? Do you? Th- does any of you think that God's going to bring a global flood again? Why not? Because He promised. He promised. Well, He did more than promise. He made an oath. And when you, when you make an oath, you bind yourself to the words that you utter in that oath. And remember, one of the things that we did last time is that we, uh, we, we paid attention to the fact that, therefore, the words of the oath cannot be ambiguous. They can't be something that, you know, a couple of years down the road, people will say, well, I never said that. Or, well, I didn't mean that. You know, by this word, I meant this. Do you see? No, you have to pick the words carefully so that what uh, is being agreed upon and what's being understood and the expectation that's being aroused by that oath is, is, uh, is clean and, and clear, yes? And all of you got that right. Yeah, you're 4,000 years removed from the Noahic Covenant but you didn't have any problem with it, did you? <clears throat> That's the first covenant that God made. It's a unilateral covenant. Noah had to build a boat, but, the, but God didn't even say build a boat and that's part of the oath. That's part of the covenant. Uh, he stepped off the boat, offered the sacrifice, and then God himself made the oath. It involved God. just says, I'm not going to do this again. And here's a rainbow to make sure, so you can see that I'm not going to do it. And I'm going to look at the rainbow too. That's the first covenant, and um, it's unambiguous, it's, it's easily understood. The second covenant is the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant has three prongs to it, which we're not going to go into, but we'll explore as we uh, go through this course. Uh, the first one has to do with Abraham's seed, his descendants. And... Uh, that, that his descendants would be like the sand of the sea and so on. Uh, right? No, the sand of the sea. Sand of the sea, stars in the sky, yeah. Well, don't, uh, I'm not on that one yet. I'm on the first bit. All right. Uh, the second one has got to do with the land that is given to Abraham. And it was a particular land. If it was the whole earth, he may as well have stayed in Uzzah, uh, the Chaldees. But he had to be brought from there into a particular place, into Canaan, which is now Israel. And then the, th- the third prong had to do, and through you all the nations of the world, or peoples of the world, will be blessed. Three prongs, okay? And those were repeated over and over again. They were repeated to Abraham, they were repeated to Isaac, and they were repeated to Jacob, and then they were also repeated at different times to Israel as well. Then you have the Mosaic Covenant, and the Mosaic Covenant is a, it's not a unilateral covenant like the first two. It's a bilateral covenant. 
And this bilateral covenant is uh, found in Exodus 24, where uh, God has given the Ten Commandments and he's given them all of these, these uh, you know, rather difficult norms that they have to keep to. And these are written in a book. And then what happens is that, that uh, uh, Moses is said to have uh, read the book out to the people say well will you agree to this so that's the oath it's a big long oath takes probably a few hours to read the whole thing out but you know will you do this do you agree to do this and enter into covenant with God and they say yeah sure we'll do that and um, so what does he do he, he, he dips the hyssop into the blood of the, the animal and he, he sprinkles the, the the book excuse me and then he flings it on the people too to show that they are in covenant with God and they better hold up their part of the covenant God's certainly going to hold up his part the problem is is, is with the human element and of course very quickly Exodus 35 they find themselves uh, getting fed up with all of that and uh, they want Aaron to make these golden calves and the, you know the bacchanalial uh, starts from that that's a unilateral covenant it's broken by Israel uh, to show that Moses who's coming down at this time he breaks the tablets uh, in his annoyance with the people but God, because he's gracious, because he's a, he's a good God and he's a long-suffering God, he gives them another chance. And so Moses has to go up near the mountain again and get some more. And the history of Israel really is a history of uh, God's faithfulness in the midst of repeated unfaithfulness of his people repeated failures for them to hold up to their part of the bargain but you see because it's a unilateral covenant and because human beings have a propensity to mess things up it cannot ever uh, be uh, normative do you see it can't ever be something that uh, that is eternal because we just can't do our part um, none of us I mean we're all, we're all the same as they are you know, we look at Israel and we get fed up with reading the book of Numbers because they're always messing up but if we'd have been there we'd have been the same way wouldn't we yeah we get, yeah. yeah we get fed up of ourselves I get fed up of myself all the time um because I know I'm not what I ought to be nothing close to what I ought to be and even when I'm letting myself off the hook or comparing myself with others you know, I'm not as bad as that person you know, I, then I, I'm still telling myself yeah, but you are still a stinking worm for even saying that, aren't you? so uh, we just can't we, we don't cut it 
that means that the Mosaic Covenant has to be replaced. It's called the Old Covenant in the book of Hebrews, and it's replaced by what? Surprise, surprise, the New Covenant. And the New Covenant is uh, not a bilateral covenant. Okay? We don't agree to do anything apart from believe on the merits of someone else, but it's all him. That's the only kind of covenant that works. It's the only kind of covenant that uh, we can rely on because those covenants uh, rely on the character of God who never fails. Um, Then you have the priestly covenant in Numbers 25 and the priestly covenant is given uh, to Phinehas. And remember what happened there? After the, uh, the debacle of Uh, of Balaam trying to curse Israel and ending up blessing Israel that didn't work out very well then Balak was was, uh, getting rather irate with Balaam and deciding that he wasn't uh, a good deal so Balaam gave up the prophesying and instead uh, worked out an intermingling of the peoples and that intermingling of the peoples worked because, you know, the, the, uh, the men saw the Canaanite women, the Canaanite women saw the Jewish men or whatever. And what happens in situations like that happened uh, very, very quickly. I mean, it was alarming. So much so that you read uh, this, this terribly distressing Situation in Numbers 25 where that man brought in the Midianite woman right in front of the noses of Moses and the leaders and went into his tent and you know they were having a nice time of it until Phinehas got a javelin went into the tent and thrust them through do you remember? now God liked what Phineas did. Uh, thousands of people had died because of the plague that God had, had uh, wrought because of that transgression. And it was Phineas's zeal that stopped God's hand, stopped the, the plague from continuing. And so God then... Vinyas wasn't expecting this, but but God said to him, because you have shown my zeal for Israel in doing this, that he he promised an everlasting covenant of peace with Phinehas and his descendants. Now, Phinehas was the grandson of Aaron. Um, A Levite. In fact, the high priest. An everlasting covenant. Now, if an everlasting covenant has been given by God to uh, a priestly family, a priestly line, I hope that you can see, and, and by the way, it has to do with offerings as well before God. I hope that you can see that as far as that passage is concerned, it appears as though there has to be a continuation of that line in uh, the ministries of Israel before God. 
Well, we know it stopped now because God is dealing with the church and he's not dealing directly with Israel. But because it's an everlasting covenant, an everlasting oath that God has entered into, I hope you can see that he can't just decide that he didn't say it. He has to make good on that covenant. And we'll see that the prophets pick up on that. They really take God at his word there and they have no problem in inciting that covenant. It's one that we don't know very much about but it's there in the Bible and we will see that it entails that in the future kingdom there will be a temple and there will be sacrifices. You say, well, yeah, but the book of Hebrews says... Yeah, but the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, we're not in the New Testament right now, so we'll just stick with what the Old Testament says, and we will, what? We will just be patient, okay? And, and maybe I'll answer that question in the next course, and maybe not. But even if I can't answer it, it's not going to stop what God said. Do you see? Even if I can't answer it, God can. And so our faith is in, in what? The powers of our intellect? Or our abilities to deduce what God really meant? Or in just believing what God has told us and leaving the rest up to God? What are covenants? Covenants are then... Um, Basically, they are amplifications <clears throat> of plain speech, you know, clear speech, about something very important. It's a very pedestrian way of describing it, but it's a useful way. They are amplifications of plain speech about very important things. The flood, that's kind of big, major. Abraham, that's major. The priesthood, that's major. David, that we'll look at. The Davidic covenant, the kingship, that's pretty major. New covenant, your salvation, I would think that that would be major. It's about major stuff. Now, because it's about major stuff, um, please understand that, that uh, these covenants must mean what they say. They're God telling you what God's going to do. And this must mean, because covenants can't be uh, spiritualized or twisted or forgotten about, they must come through. God um, imposes an obligation upon himself when he enters into these covenants. Because that's the truth, nothing else in the Bible can cross what those covenants say. Do you see that? Anyone feel bold enough to tell me why? It would make God a liar, wouldn't it? Yes. Yeah, a false. It would make him a false witness. Right. You've been reading my stuff. Good. Um, God. <clears throat> um, because these are about major things. 
Okay, they are God telling us the major things that he's going to do. Um, if he's going to do them, then I hope that you can see that he doesn't work at cross purposes to himself and his own plans. Therefore, a teaching that we might introduce because we think that we understand something about the Bible that, you know, Hennebury doesn't or whatever, um, which is possible. Um, but this, you know, it's not unlikely at all. But this, I hope that you can see, um, if you're introducing something that's going to cross these covenants, then you're going to threaten the covenants. And if you're going to threaten the covenants, you are threatening the character of God and his promise. Do you see? And that's the importance of the covenants, that they are, in a sense, a skeleton or a backbone, or a, I'm trying to think of the right word, signpost, framework, whatever, think of one, that, uh, that tell us what God is going to do. They set for, forth the program of God in this creation project, do you see? And it's not yet fulfilled. There's a lot of it that is still to come. And one of the things that we're going to see when we look at the prophets is that we're going to see that their prophecies about the, this golden age and these wonderful things that are going to happen and peace and safety and all the rest of it um, that, that they challenge us to say God has promised these things but he hasn't brought them about yet or he hasn't brought them about or he hasn't brought them about in the way that it says there. But maybe he's brought them about in another way. E.g. Um, so in Isaiah chapter 2, if you'll go there, and I say Isaiah and I'm not saying Isaiah. <clears throat> so you just have to put up with it because I'm English. <clears throat> Let's see. Um, thinking about the right passage. My Bible is falling apart here. <clears throat> no, not that one. Try chapter 11. All right, that's the one. So, Isaiah chapter 11, I'm going to read from verse 6 down. I'm going to then give you two interpretations. One of them is going to be the interpretation uh, that is often given by Christian pastors and Christian professors and in Christian uh, scholarly books. And the other one is, is the dumb one that I believe. So... <laughs> Here it is. The wolf shall also dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the young lion and the fatling together and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young ones shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole. And the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. 
For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now, <clears throat> here's the scholarly interpretation. Remember I said that you're confronted, you'll be confronted in the prophets with uh, uh, certain promises about a state of affairs that you have to do something with, you have to make a decision about. And um, this is the decision that many scholars have come to. Okay. Uh, this is metaphor, it's imagery for the fact that when you come to Christ when you believe in him, that you stop arguing with yourself. That the, the wolves and the bears and the nasty critters inside are, are uh, ameliorated. And they are, uh, what's a simpler word? No. They're, they're nullified and, and yeah, they're, they're trained and, and they become... Thank you, thank you. Um, and so you, yeah, you, you just come to this, this peace and this, this, this harmony within yourself. And so this is figurative language for that. Yeah? And it can preach well, can't it? You're all screwing your noses up. But that's what I was taught in seminary and that's what many of the commentaries say and many of the scholars say that now here's a dumb interpretation the dumb interpretation is that it means exactly what it says yeah. now ok so if it's the first it's fulfilled now you don't have to wait around for it you don't have to ask the question well how's that going to happen and how can a wolf uh, you know, you're telling me that a wolf won't eat meat anymore and all that stuff, yes? All of those questions. Uh, well, they, they become non-questions because you have found the figurative centre of, of that passage. And what Isaiah really means is that you stop arguing with yourself. Or, it, it goes into... The, uh, the future you put it into the future when you put it into the future I hope that you can see that you have those problems you're stuck with them aren't you in fact it sounds a little bit um, I don't know childish to believe that you don't really believe that this is going to literally happen do you that a little child's going to be leading around a lion and a bear and so on. I mean, that's a little bit, that, that's kind of like believing in, that there was a global flood or that God created the world in six literal days or something like that. That's what we're told by these evangelical scholars today. That's all nonsense. It's all fanciful. It's, it wasn't meant to be taken at face value. But, but please, yeah, please... Um, Please notice what you have to do there. You're confronted with a choice. And that is always an interpretative choice. One of them is to believe what it says. And if you believe what it says, then you have to put the, the uh, fulfillment of the prophecy beyond our time. And you have to say that God's going to do some stuff, actually it ends up being a lot of stuff, that he hasn't done yet. 
Or, if you're impatient with that and you, you know that the church is the new Israel, then the church being the new Israel, we can, we can jump on this verse, we can claim it as fulfilled today in a spiritual and wonderful and metaphorical way. And, uh, you know, we can preach our sermons on it, can't we? Yeah, oh, I don't like it either, but, but it's done an awful lot. We're not going to be doing that in this class. Uh, and because we're not going to be doing it, what we're going to be doing, what we'll have to do, is that we'll have to accrue a great deal of this kind of, of material to build a picture of um, uh, the expectation of the kingdom that is covenantally anchored, we'll see, but it's a kingdom that has not yet come. And it's, they, there are promises and there are acts of God that are incumbent upon um, not the first coming of Christ, but the second coming of Christ. In fact, we'll see this too. We'll see that the prophets are more concerned, <clears throat> by and large, with the second coming of Christ than they are with the first coming. Have you noticed that? There is more attention given to what we call the second coming. You know, Jesus coming in power and glory and coming to uh, beat everybody up and squash everybody's heads and all of that stuff and then set up a kingdom of peace after that. Um, and uh, there's a great deal of information about that and there's a great deal of information about the kingdom that he's going to set up. Was that a... It was, but you told me not to ask questions. Uh, yeah, all right. Uh, you can in a minute. I saw that, though. Okay. Um, but if you, if you want to interpret this stuff by the first coming, that is by the cross and the resurrection of Christ. Uh, it sounds pious and you can make it sound very spiritual. But what you are going to be forced to do is um, bring all of that stuff that you've, uh, you would have to put into the future and, and bring it into the present, or actually bring it into the past at the cross. And when you do that, you are going to have to spiritualize much of the Old Testament, particularly the prophets. It is a choice between uh, whether you're going to interpret the Bible by the first coming of Christ or by the second coming of Christ. And we're going to be confronted with that. We, want, we put an awful lot of, of emphasis and onus on the first coming of Christ, and all, so we should. But we'll see this too, that often in the Old Testament, the two comings of Christ are fused together as one work. In fact, when you take communion, they're fused together. Do you notice that? You know, you remember his body and his blood, but what? Until I come. Do you see that? So there's even a reminder there that um, the temptation to, to believe that everything's fulfilled at the first coming 
is, is a wrong temptation. Because it's not. And you don't have to be a biblical scholar to know that, by the way. You just need to read the newspaper, don't you? Or look around you. Um, God's not on his throne, and Christ not, is not on David's throne, and the church is not reigning. And things actually looking pretty dire for the church in the West. Um, but if you look at it through the, uh, through the second coming, then I hope you can see there's a great deal that we can look forward to, a great deal that God's going to do. <coughs> yes? I was going to ask, is it separated into two different comings in the Old Testament? Um, that's a good question. I, don't, I can't recall. I don't think so, John. So um, is that why the, the disciples had such a hard time? With, yes. Where's the army? You know? Yes, yeah, I think so, yeah. Yeah, the time thing, you know. Mm-hmm. God's time and our time. <laughs> We're trying to figure it out in our little time. Yeah. It's big time. Well, that's a very good point, actually, yes. Um, uh, we, we stumble through uh, our days and through moments, and some moments don't last long enough, and some moments last far too long. Um <laughs> I can remember being stuck in a job uh, before I was saved. I was in, uh, working in a stores where you had to label things. You put things in a bag and label them and then put them in a kit. And then you did exactly the same thing with another kit day after day after day. And I did that for several years this was before I was saved. Um, and, uh, you know, I thought that... Um, I would never get out of that. I mean, I was 20, 21, 22. I thought I'd never get out of this rut that I was in, okay? That this was going to be it. But I got out of it, and I actually, you know, I, I got promoted and, you know, got on, uh, became a buyer and all of these other things, and then got, God called me into the ministry, and my uh, meteoric rise in the company was stopped but um, that's a joke by the way it wasn't much of a meteor <laughs> um, but I was getting noticed um, but time yeah but time can be like that can't it um, and uh, to God all of the history of the world is just a moment it's just a short time uh, the, the short expanse of, of our lives, however long we're here, what is it in comparison to eternity? What is it in comparison to what our loved ones have entered into? What is it in comparison to um, where we'll all be? And that experience, um, it, it's, it doesn't, yeah, you see, it's a very, very different thing, isn't it? Um, all right. Uh, I'm going to skip the downward sl- slide. I've said a little bit about it, but you all know the story, don't you? Yes? So it starts gloriously on Mount Sinai and it ends with uh, 
with the Benjamites chopping up a uh, concubine and or I think it was Benjamites and uh, sending her parts to the different tribes okay in uh, the book of Judges uh, it's it's uh, we have uh, other low points like uh, uh, Israel bringing out the Ark of the Covenant against the Philistines. The Philistines at first are afraid because of their paganism. They believe that uh, God is present there with them. But they overcome their fear and actually capture the Ark and Israel loses the Ark of God. Eventually it's brought back, um, but the but priests are, yeah, but the priests are so out of, um, of um, oh, come on, mm, that they have forgotten about their duties to such an extent that one of them, well, they put it on a cart that they shouldn't have done, and uh, one of them actually touches the ark. I know that he thought that he had a good reason to do it, but God didn't agree with him and he died. Because as a priest, he should know that the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant shouldn't be on a cart. It should be held on poles by the priests. Um, so that's where we get to, and then we get Saul, and uh, that goes pear-shaped, and then we get David which is where we're going to start next time. My last thing that I need to do tonight, if you can bear with it, is to ask the question, what is a prophet? Two answers. It could be someone who predicts, a person who predicts the future, or one who foretells the word of God. That's pretty good. <clears throat> uh, he's in, in a sense, he's a messenger, in the sense of uh, of what Susie said, right. the second part right. being a fourth teller. Yeah, he's a teacher. Yeah, it's through the inspiration of God, though, right? It's not just like mm-hmm. just a thing. He's being inspired. Yeah, oh, through dream or whatever, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. that's all. All of that's good. But what is he basically? Person. I mean, if somebody claims to be a prophet, what are they claiming to do? Well, I can share God's truth, but I don't claim to be a prophet. What? Well, I'm a representative of God. You're a representative of God. Nope. Do you guys want to say fourth tell, don't you? <laughs> Where'd you get that from? They do. I mean, they they do fourth tell in a sense of. Yeah, I'm going to ask you in a minute. Uh, what? No, I'm no, I'm trying to get you guys to think. Um, just a minute, just a minute, just a minute. Um, 
many, many of you want to say forth tell. Well, I can forth tell. That doesn't make me a prophet. Okay? If it does, then if you think it does, then, you know, I'll, I'll see you later and we'll, uh, we'll work out arrangements for you being a follower of mine. Um, but, but lots of people can foretell, can't they? Now, it is true that the, uh, that the prophets did try to call the people of Israel back into line, particularly back into line to the Mosaic standards. They did do that. So in that sense, they were God-ordained people that did that. But, if you want to know what a prophet is, then go to Deuteronomy 18. And the, uh, the answer to the question is first put in the negative. <clears throat> Verse 20. So Deuteronomy 18, Verse 20. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods that prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not happen or come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. So I ask you again, what is a prophet? Well, no, look at it. No. Look at verse 22. So what is he doing? If he's, if he's saying this is the word of the Lord and you've got to test him, how do you test him? If what doesn't come true? The what What's another word for a prophecy then? Prediction. He's predicting, yes. In fact, uh, remember that it says in First Samuel that before, you know, when it talked about Samuel, before the time of the prophets, they were known as seers, seers into the future. Did you see? He's saying this is going to happen in the future. Well, how do you test him? Yeah. So what's he doing? He's predicting stuff, isn't he? So the smart ones wait until a long time out. Well, I'm going to get to that. I'm going to get. How's that different than foretelling? It's not. It's not. But this bunch were saying foretelling, and I wanted to make sure. I wanted to make sure. Well, well, blame them because that's what they were saying. Look, did you? Yes. Well, it sounded like foretell. It could be. All right. All right. Well, just look. I speak up in 
Um, I'm sorry that that was an exercise in futility, wasn't it? Um, but I hope that I made my point. My point is that you test a prophet by what he sa- whether what he says comes true, by whether he has the power to foretell the future. A false prophet, therefore, is somebody who, well, he does foretell, but it, what he says doesn't come through. That's how you test a prophet. Therefore, the essence of what a prophet is, is somebody who predicts or foretells the future which is what you said, I'm sorry, Susie, uh, but the person next to you definitely said for <laughs> All right. <clears throat> what? I've nearly... Uh, yeah. I've nearly finished. I've nearly finished. Um, so what about if it's a long time? Because a lot of the prophecies are for a long time. Think about the predictions of Christ. A virgin shall conceive. Yes. Uh, Isaiah 53. The, uh, yeah, the crucifixion passage there. The Psalm 22. Uh, Micah 5.2. About he will be born in Bethlehem Ephrata. Yes. Many of those passages were long-range prophecies. In fact, uh, as we will see when we enter into this, uh, they, they combine the first and second comings, like you were saying earlier. Um, so how do you test a prophet when he's long range? In other words, when he just utters this stuff and then dies and, you know, and, and uh, doesn't have the, ba- the good manners to show up again when the church begins to spiritualize his prophecy. Um, you test him and the only way you can test his prophecy is whether it actually comes through the way he said it, came, it, it was to come through. If Isaiah, in Isaiah 11, predicted a time when the wolf will lie down the la- with the lamb, then if he's a, a true prophet, that's what's going to happen. Do you see? If he's a pro- false prophet, then that's not going to happen. But he is only uh, a viable prophet of God if his words mean what they say, because that's the only way you can test them. Otherwise, um, a prophet could say, well, yeah, it came wrong that way, but I didn't mean it literally. I meant it spiritually, and spiritually it did come through. True, do you see? You're just too literal. In other words, there would be no way of testing a prophet unless the prophet could be tested on what he actually said. And that brings us back to, because prophets represent God, does God mean what he says? Okay? Because the prophets are not speaking for themselves, they're speaking for God. So when we go and we study the prophets here, we are studying people who first and foremost are called to prophesy, to predict. And we have got to decide 
um, to, to take them literally, to take them at face value, because that is what God wants us to do. That takes us back to God's character. It takes us back to the covenants, to the God's words, uh, God's actions motif, um, which is so central to um, to buoying up our spiritual lives, uh, to making them meaningful, to um, in- encouraging us, to helping us to encourage other people. We don't want to be told a bunch of pink tea half-truths that sound frothy and frilly, uh, but I found nowhere in the Bible. It's just somebody's, you know, just a bunch of platitudes, basically, that someone is giving to us. What we need is that we need somebody to say, yeah, well, look what God says here about your situation. Look what God says about you. When I counsel people, I don't want to come with them with a bunch of effeminate froth to give to them. I want to give them truth and I can only give them truth if I show it to them and, and say God means this about you. God says if you do this if I do this then good will come. If you don't do it then things are going to go squirrely. So it's dependent. Everything is dependent. Our practical lives our own spiritual lives, our reading of the Bible, and our understanding of the grand program of, of God from beginning to end, it all depends on taking God at his word. That's what we're going to do, and um, hopefully that introduction will whet your appetite for next week. Uh, what we'll do, we'll start doing next week is we'll look at the Davidic covenant. Okay? If you have any questions, uh, write them down and we'll deal with them at the beginning of next week's um, course, okay, our class. Do you have any questions right now, by the way? Yeah. They're just dying to ask. Should we read? What, is there anything you want to read? Uh, for, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, 1 Chronicles chapter 17, Psalm 89.